I do a lot of guest speaking, and a while back I thought, you know, I need something snappier than good morning, although you can respond if you want. So I was going up to Anthony, Kansas to be the guest preacher for the weekend, and I practiced a new opening, and, and it was this. I'm here because your pastor, Nathan Stanton, invited me to be here. But the real reason that I'm here is because I have no place better to be. <laughs> this uppity professor driving up here from Dallas. But you know what? You'll understand what I mean, won't you? I personally have no place better to be. And it seems that the same is true for you. It is a joy to be here. <laughs> in the house of the Lord on a beautiful day in October. So thanks be to God. And if anybody needs some good news, then I believe I have some. The raising of Lazarus is one of several actions of Jesus in John's Gospel that are meant to inspire faith in Jesus as the Son of God incarnate. We have the water to wine, the feeding of the 5,000, we have the walking on the water, and finally we have the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. The raising of Lazarus is not a release from physical death for all of us, but an assurance of being raised to spiritual life with him. And it was, for Jesus' enemies, the straw that broke the camel's back. Because someone who can raise someone from the dead must himself be put to death. We may find that this is a very odd story, hard to relate to, but we will find that we are in a similar situation to Lazarus, and that, in fact, we have a mutual friend. So here now, from the 11th chapter of John, the raising of Lazarus. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, although Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And moving down to verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, 
your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher's here. He is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with Mary in the house consoling her saw that she got up quickly, and so they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep for her brother. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and she said to him, Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in his spirit and he was deeply moved and he says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? If you believed, you would see the glory of God. And so they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. If you're like me, you've had the experience of being in some social setting where you're supposed to exercise your suave small talk. And you find yourself standing across from someone that you have never met before and locking eyes and each of your minds frantically with the same thought, what, what are we going to find in common to talk about? When I read this text, I imagine myself at such an event, standing across from Lazarus. We lock eyes, and 
since he doesn't say anything, I, I, uh, I begin with, so, uh, where are you from? He says, I am from Bethany, which means house of affliction. And I say, oh, I say, well, you know, your chamber of commerce might want to rethink. <laughs> I, on the other hand, I'm from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, which means a town that a bunch of mechanics founded in the 1800s. And then I, I try again. I say, well, so, uh, so, so what's your name? He says, my name is Lazarus, which means God helps me. And I respond, well, not to one-up you or anything, but my name is Alice, which means the noble one. But after that, what do we do? Conversation might flounder, unless we can find something that we have in common. Well, there is one thing, death, always an upbeat topic. Death is oncoming for both of us, for you and for me. I recently was asked to be a, a teacher at Highland Park United Methodist Church to go and teach a class on the parables to the two-by-two two class. And I got there about 15 minutes early, and I went in, and, and I looked around at a room full of people of a mature age, most of them women, talking and having coffee. The person who had invited me came up to me, and she welcomed me, and she, she admitted that her name also was Alice. So we began to talk about that, and then she called another woman over whose name also was Alice. So the three of us had a little confab about how fabulous it is to be named Alice. And, and then I noticed the woman over here who seemed a little left out. So I went over and I began to talk with her, and she said that her name was Evelyn, which I said was also an equally fine name. And uh, I said, so have you been a member of the class for a long time? And she said, yes, she said, we, uh, my husband and I um, have been married 50 years. He passed away a couple of years ago. We joined the class in 1955, and we've been together quite a long time. Uh, it, it's called the two-by-two two class, but it's more like now the one-by-one uh, one one class. She said, um, now, after all these years, all of us are old, and a lot of us are dead. And then realizing how that sounded, she smiled brightly and she said, and we're so glad to have you joining us today. <laughs> death is oncoming. Death is oncoming for all of us. We have that in common with Lazarus. I heard a, an old preacher one time preaching about death, and he said, everybody's death has its vehicle. Everybody's death has its vehicle. It pulls up like a limousine that you never ordered at your curb. He said it, it's, for some people, it's, it's an accident. For others, it might be violence or murder. For others, war. For others, it might be cancer. For others, old age. But everybody, friends, everybody's death has its vehicle. And the trick is to have your faith tank all fueled up when your vehicle pulls up at the curb. A friend of mine told me about the worst funeral she ever conducted. It was for the death of a baby. 
And in counseling with the parents who had no apparent faith connection and no connection to the church, in counseling with them, the young father asked her to not mention the words death or coffin, but to substitute the words sleeping and crib. And at the service, he came in late, drunk, and highly distraught, and he attempted to lift the child from the coffin. She said, she said, Alice, it was the worst display of grief, untethered from faith, that I have ever seen. We have in common with Lazarus that death is oncoming. We also have, in the meantime, in common with Lazarus, that um, between now and then, that death, strife of life is coming. We all have the experience sometimes of, of guilt over the past that can be like grave clothes for us, of, of that panic in the present when we assume that whatever challenge we're facing, we face by ourselves, that kind of fear of the future, like grave clothes, like a tomb as we sit. And we can experience our faith weakening in the trials of life. In John's Gospel, faith is not some kind of static possession that we have, we own, but it is a, it's a verb more than a noun. It is the act of entrusting our lives into God's hands, past, present, and future, whatever, whatever the future may hold. But sometimes, sometimes the cares of life can cause our entrusting muscles to, to entropy. And as we look around at the world and we see other people who are entombed, encased in situations where their, their gifts are wasted and their lives are not valued, sometimes we realize that we have, may have more in common with Lazarus than we think. So we have something to talk about with him. Oncoming death, oncoming strife, but we have something else. Jesus is coming toward your tomb. There's nothing that you can do to stop it. Nothing I can do to stop it. He's coming, oncoming Jesus, and he is standing at the entrance to your tomb. Who, uh, who is this? Who is this friend that we have in common now with Lazarus? Well, he's the best kind of friend, the kind who will lay down his life for us if it becomes necessary, and it will, oh, it will. He stands at the entrance to our tomb, and, and he offers us a gift. But who is this friend? Who is this friend? We talked in our, in our workshop on, on preaching yesterday about how the best preachers don't just tell us things, right? They show us things. And John was the best kind of preacher. So instead of a game of show and then tell, what he does in the prologue is he tells us who Jesus is. Jesus is the word and wisdom of God, the Son of God, the word made flesh, who has come, what, to show us the way to eternal life. To show us the way to eternal life. Don't you love this jargon that we throw around? What does eternal life mean? Well, we'll see, perhaps. But to show us the way to eternal life. And then in the next 20 chapters of John's Gospel, he shows us, shows us who Jesus is. And one way is through encounters with deeply troubled people, where Jesus stands at the entrance to their tombs 
and, and offers them a gift that comes with the choice. So Nicodemus, what, what's it going to be? Is it going to be uh, up the career ladder? Or is it going to be new birth by the Holy Spirit? So, woman at the well, what is it going to be? Beloved woman cherished by God, is it going to be continued isolation and shame, or is it going to be come on out into forgiveness and community? So, so what's it going to be, man by the pool? Are you going to spend another 38 years? I don't know if you have that much time. 38 years lying by this pool on this mat? Are you going to rise and take up your mat? And, and follow me, having learned the lessons that illness can teach, but entrusting your future into the hands of a healing God. What is it going to be? He stands and offers us a gift along with that challenge. It is the gift of eternal life. For a number of years, I served on the board of ordained ministry, first in the theology room and then in the worship and sacraments room. I got critiqued by my colleagues because they felt that I was a little too pastoral sometimes, because I just can't stand to see that look on someone's face. Like, I know the answer, but I just can't articulate it. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, no one knows. And so I like to throw people a lifeline. I have this pastoral empathy. And so um, one of the questions asked in the theology room was, when does eternal life begin? And one of the candidates got that look. Okay, go ahead and adopt it if you want. The whole, co the whole room will, oh, I know, but I don't know. And so I locked eyes with her. She was right in my sight line, and I said, And she looked. And unfortunately, I, don't, I think she might have been deferred, but. <laughs> Eternal life begins now. Or it can. It can. But what is eternal life? What is eternal life? The gift that Jesus offers. Eternal life is the gift of a relationship with God. It's not an inherent part of human life that we would live forever. It's a gift of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God's Son, that we accept by faith. And it is a gift not just for this life, but it can be for all eternity because of what God has accomplished in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Eternal life is a gift which begins now. And to further show what a great preacher John was, he further breaks down eternal life. What is it? What is it? I mean, that's lovely. You have eternal life. That would be enough. I could just come and stand up here and say, hey, you all have eternal life. It's just a gift from God, and, and you can enjoy that forever. Go, let, well, let's take up the offering first, and then everyone can go. But he breaks it down. He illustrates he has these I am sayings that Jesus offers so that every, everything that we need for our journey in this life and the life to come, everlasting, eternal life, God provides. 
we need, well, what do we need for life? And what do we need for physical sustenance? We need bread, right? And so Jesus is the bread of life. In order, I think you can um, go more days without food than you can without water. So Jesus is the living water. We need light, don't we? Jesus is the light of the world. We need a path. I am the way. We need a guide. I am the good shepherd. And we need, we need renewed life to walk along that path. And so Jesus, in the most dramatic, most revolutionary, most threatening act of all, raises someone, raises them to new life physically. So Lazarus's restoration to physical life is a metaphor for our restoration spiritually that is now and lasts eternally. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection, and I am life. And eternal life begins. That's good news. It's such good news. Eternal life begins now. It's good news for the little community to which John wrote. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus represent that, that community on whose behalf he wrote. And they were anxious because their Lord was no longer physically present. And they were facing persecution and an uncertain future. And so <laughs> eternal life begins today was good news for them. It was good news for the man whose statue is out in the courtyard I happened to notice as I walked over here. You remember, the we talked yesterday in our um, preaching workshop about how you have a lot of different story buckets, sometimes personal stories, sometimes contemporary stories, sometimes biblical stories, and sometimes historical stories, which we may know already, but I'd just love to tell them again, love to tell the story of John Wesley on his way to America, on that ship in the middle of a roaring gale, He's holding on to the mast, you remember. He's afraid for his life. He looks over here, and there's a bunch of Moravians and their children who are singing hymns of faith in a high gale. And he, he later writes in his journal, it was at that point that I realized that mine was a dry land, fair weather faith. And then back in London, after a miserable failure, both at a relationship and at um, his ministry, don't you love it when good things come in twos, right? He gets back to England, and uh, he's depressed. And he tells his friend Peter Bowler, Why, how can I preach? I, I have no faith. I've lost my faith. And Peter Bowler famously says, the Moravian pastor, preach the faith, John, until you have the faith. And then on that evening in 1738, he says, I went unwillingly to a prayer service at a chapel off of Aldersgate Street in London. And there, as someone was reading from the preface to the Book of Romans, at about 8.45 p.m., I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and that he had, had died for me even for me, and had freed me from the law of sin and death. Later on, he wrote, It is a miracle that God can raise Jesus from the dead. It is as much a miracle that God can raise dead faith to life. Eternal life begins now 
was good news for, for a friend of mine and for lots of people these days who are struggling, they're struggling with assumptions that they've held for a long time and being called forth to struggle and to rethink things that never troubled them before. But a friend of mine who, who, um, who said, you know, um, my, um, my partner and I, uh, we are in different, we have the same position on the monuments issue. But, but she grew up in New Jersey, and I grew up in Georgia. And so she has the same position, mind and heart, and I have it, mind, but I'm still struggling with the heart. Eternal life begins now, I, I hear it in, in one of my friends on Facebook, who had a, a baby girl about 15 months ago. And he called himself out on Facebook, and he said, you know, um, I, um, I guess I'm getting tired of hearing people say, as a father, as a father, I abhor this treatment of women. He said, you know, I, I'm kind of embarrassed that though I've become sensitized recently, it took being a father for me to be sensitized. So calling, calling ourselves out. It's not easy, is it? Eternal life begins now is good news for Jean and Heath Williams. Some of you may know them. Uh, Jean is the pastor of Bella, First United Methodist Church of Bella Vista, Arkansas. She and Heath have a, a little girl whose name is Natalie. And about a year, a year and a half ago, their uh, little girl, Hazel, died after just a few days of life. And some of you may know that October 15th is the Wave of Light Day where, uh, in honor of pregnancy loss and infant death, people around the world light a candle at 7 o'clock on um, October 15th and leave it burning for an hour in honor of those um, lives that have lit up our world so briefly and in honor and um, in, in uh, support for the families who have experienced that. She wrote on Facebook, she said, you know, and I have her permission. I, was I said, I'd, I wrote and asked her and I said, I don't have to give your name or where you're from. She said, give my name and where I'm from and, and spread um, what God has done for us. She said, you know, last year was very raw and emotional for us. Uh, and, and this year, there's still, there's still tremendous sadness. But this year, uh, as we lit the candle and we all uh, sat together, uh, there was a sense that, that um, there was a beacon of light in our midst. And there was a sense of, of um, God with us even more strongly, bringing us comfort. Eternal life doesn't wait. Eternal life, eternal life begins now. You know, the promise of the raising of Lazarus, it's not a promise that that, that young father's baby will come to life in his arms as he carries it around to funeral service. But it is a promise that, that if he can just open he can just open his heart just a sliver, open that window just a crack, that God can come into his heart and mind. 
And what seemed to be a flat-lined faith can begin to beat again with life. The promise of the story of the raising of Lazarus is it's not a promise that suddenly in the two-by-two class, Evelyn's husband will materialize next to her and they will carry on as before for, for a 51st year. But it is a promise that whether we're single or married, we, um, we always walk two by two because we have, we have that friend. I was once teaching about, about this story, and uh, Ken Polk, who's a member of my local congregation, came up to me, and he said, you know, um, I want to just take issue with something that you said. I love that, don't you? He said, uh, I, I don't think that you should say eternal life begins today. He said, I think you should say eternal life can begin today. Point taken. My um, father-in-law, Paul McKenzie, is 90 years old, and he recently had pneumonia and um, had uh, weeks of being bedridden and then was in a rehabilitation facility to try and get some of his strength back, his atrophied muscle strength back. My husband, Murray, was there in, um, this is in York, Pennsylvania, was there in the room as Paul's young physical therapist was working with him painstakingly because his heart wasn't in it. And she was working so hard with him to just get him up out of bed and to get him rotated around into his chair. And, and finally she said, she said, Mr. McKenzie, do you know what the most important factor in physical therapy is? And he said, well, you can call me Paul, and no. She said, the most important factor in physical therapy is the will of the patient to get stronger. This is not about my goals for you. This is about your goals for yourself and your will. This is about a choice that nobody can make but you. Do you know what the most important factor in resurrection is, friends? The most important factor in resurrection is the power of God to raise even dead faith to life. Amen? The most important factor in resurrection of dead faith is the power of God who raised Jesus Christ from the cross, from the tomb, to be with God eternally, so that we can be with God eternally. Eternal life begins, can begin now. If we will heed the call, come out and walk out of that tomb, pulling our grave clothes off as we go. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.